Tuning in to the Opvac cast. We are back from our uh, long, long slumber, uh, probably due to uh, the loudest movie ever made, which we'll be covering this evening. Um, my name is Adam Myros, and uh, I am joined by a full slate of guests today. So uh, let's go around the horn, guys. Uh, first of all, let's start west and go with Jake Tropila. How are you doing this evening? Oh, sorry, I jumped the gun there. I'm doing fine. Thank you, Adam. How are you doing? Oh, I am, you know, it's late. I'm getting tired, but uh, here we will soldier through. Yeah, 7 o'clock here. Uh, Sun's still out. God damn it. <laughs> uh, let's let's head to the east here. Uh, we'll stop in the central time zone. Chicago, Illinois. Jack Easton, how are you this evening? I'm worried about the state of the youth, Adam. Well, I've seen Detroit, so uh, it seems about right. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm just I'm just worried that they're they're just too busy playing video games. They won't be able to fight in a war. But we'll talk about that later. Uh, uh, I don't I don't know if I can keep going with this west to east gimmick because uh, the rest of us are all pretty much in the same place. So I'm going to go with Eric Bailey. Hi, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. Thank you, Adam. That that was concise. Very appreciative. Uh, <laughs> All right. Um, I now to a man who will certainly not be concise. Uh, Sean Glennis. Hi, I um, I'm from Slate.com. I'm I'm the political reporter, and I couldn't be happier to be on Optimism Vaccine. Thanks a lot, Adam. I heard you guys were having some unionization issues. <laughs> oh no! Don't worry about those. Don't read what. Uh, don't don't believe everything you read. You know what I mean? Uh, ah, okay. Yeah. Well, I have heard you got to remain. Uh, Limber in this economy. Uh, journalism is its a dying art. You can believe everything we tell you tonight, though, because we're a source of truth, as they say. Uh, is, that, an, is that on the record? That, <laughs> I, I thought you were keeping track of that, Sean. You're the journalist. I expect people, when they talk to me, to tell me every time whether it's on the record or off the record. Sort right, of we'll a, that's sort of in that's that's biz uh, formalities. I don't know. We're going to put a series of hand signals for that. Uh, well, here at Optimism Vaccine, we don't have to concern ourselves with uh, pesky unions because we don't pay <laughs> anyone anything. Always. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyhow, uh, we are back in honor of the thrilling. Best film ever, uh, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk. I heard it's. Uh, I, I didn't see this. I, I won't see this. But you know, I heard. I, I've I've heard things like it's big and loud, and there's a war the, that happened, and there were heroes. It's, so the, the Dunkirk rises. What's this about? World War Two or something? Well, it wasn't really World War Two at that point because America hadn't joined yet, as I learned. Pretty soon after I moved over here, someone explained that to me once. That's not even a joke. That actually happened. (laughs) World War II, was it was just a skirmish up until 1941, and this occurred prior to the U.S. joining. 
So then the U.S. joined, and then it was a proper world war. Oh. There's a little legit. lesson there. Yep, no, that's that's how that happened. That's one so. of our many turnkey solutions here. <laughs> <laughs> so to make, technically to make this, it worse. This was about a uh, prominent European conflict. We'll yeah, it's like that. a proto-World War II flick. Ah, so I've seen plenty of those. How? Why should I change my stance and go see this one? Just because it's bigger and louder? Or was there something uh, that Nolan managed to bring to the table here that, that should interest me? No. <laughs> All right, moving on. Not really? <laughs> All right, guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Dunkirk's over. <laughs> cool. No, um, I mean, it's, it's Nolan's concept of a VR war experience, virtual reality without the goggles, which sounds... Honestly, that always sounded to me like a really bad idea, but I kind of figured, you know, if you're going to see it, you might as well see it on a big screen and see what that means. And what it means is that it's not really your experience, and it's also got a lot of the problems. But um, I don't know. I didn't I didn't hate it, personally. I think it would, well, actually, I kind of hated it, but I kind of don't <laughs> mind other parts. But it's a war movie, and war movies are just loaded with so many problematic elements to them. So yeah, I, I think I think we probably all are had our various uh, kind of uh, and kind of sticking points on it. Yeah, I'm not really crazy about it either, and I don't. I wouldn't say that I hate it, but I I hate how much people are loving it because, yeah. like you said, it is. It's really just sort of a, a formalist exercise on Nolan's part to shoot the shit out of every scene with these massive IMAX cameras and deafen the audience with the thunderous sound design and the score by Hans Zimmer. So he's really out just to make an an incredibly immersive experience, which he does, but he doesn't walk away with really anything resembling a satisfying film or any emotional connection. It just is it's just a sound and light show. And that's speaking, all there really is. Speaking of that, Ed, who actually here really saw the movie? Because there, obviously, because there's been a lot of discussion about how you see this movie. I know I didn't see the movie because I, I saw it on 70 mil, but not in IMAX. So yeah, it was it, I, it was a shorter, stouter image, which obviously is I didn't, bullshit. I didn't see it either because um, apparently uh, the real Dunkirk is a masterpiece. Um, what I saw was not that. Um, so. Did you, see, you, you saw like a DCP, correct? Like I saw digital... I saw DCP on on a, a larger than regulation screen, um, but it wasn't IMAX. It was sort of this like faux IMAX thing. It was okay. whatever. Uh, I mean, it was loud enough to like where the planes were like hurting my ears, which is apparently like um, real avant garde. I don't know. That's what war is like. Just a uh, lot of just it's loud. Yeah, I could have seen it in IMAX, but I kind of just like I I made a. a what you know i could have made that decision but i kind of just overlooked it and then was like oh shoot i should probably yeah, I was, just I was already i was already to go all out for this just for the sake of it and go see it in imax 70 mil but apparently the only venue in chicago that can exhibit in imax 70 mil is under renovation so it wasn't released in that format here at all so i i just went to the cinema that was 10 minutes from my house because yeah i'm, I'm part of this soft millennial generation and i didn't go to the beaches of europe to get myself blown up i just took the east route and walked 10 <laughs> minutes down the road and watched this movie and then went home um well yeah i i think you made the right choice but uh, J- uh jake you you said uh you mentioned the fact that um everybody is loving it and uh what we're what like two two and a half weeks removed maybe what three weeks removed from dunkirk and um 
it's uh you know it the reviews came out that week and they were just like uproarious like it was just like couldn't be higher praise um yeah. from like Nolan, Nolan's best film yeah, a lot of super uh, prominent critics. A lot of people that are smart um, and that are that are critics were, were calling it a, legitimately just like a masterpiece. Like that was the headlines, like Dunkirk masterpiece, Miss Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, blah blah. And um, we're three weeks removed, and I know that we're like sort of um, living in a time where the conversation moves like in like so quickly because there's just so much content coming out and that's like how journalism works now it is just sort of like moving on to the next thing as soon as possible um yeah but i i I already kind of feel like uh it's not like i feel like a ghost story which we'll talk about later i feel like the talk about that has lasted longer than dunkirk maybe it's because it it came out so slowly and it still hasn't like it, it it was never on the scope um, that Dunkirk was, but like Dunkirk was talked about a ton in like over five days, and and it kind of went quietly. And I'm really interested. Um, I don't know if I can like predict or anything like that, or if I'm willing to, but I'm really interested in whether uh, the its status as like a masterpiece lasts or not. It's yeah, very interesting that you said that. Mentioned that about other critics, like critics I read often, and I find intelligent and articulate people. And it just seems like it's like the Avatar effect. They were blinded by this spectacle, and then when everyone goes and sees it, and then several weeks later, they start to really. I think the flaws just really start to emerge from the film, and and people think, oh, that, that wasn't really like, that good at all, or just a lack of a lasting. Uh, yeah. Know, yeah. It's yeah, it's just a very beautiful fireworks display for a hundred minutes, and then mm-hmm. and then that's it. And people talk about, oh, it's great, you got to see it. I saw it, by the way, I saw it in the true seventy millimeter IMAX, and just because I was curious, I pulled up my receipt on my phone. I paid twenty six seventy five for Holy my ticket. Oh, yeah, Lord. but well, uh, it's like I, buying a share in a company. But you- I. <laughs> I, did. I paid two. I paid for two tickets uh, for a movie in Detroit, a large city, yesterday in in chairs that were amazing, like chairs that that you know um, recline, foot stuff comes out, like just really foot super comfortable. Foot. I don't, it's not what an ottoman, but what is this? The, the chair, rec- the whole Tim and it was billion dollar movie. Oh my god! So, okay. Just, anyway, a recliner, like, I, a recliner, and just like a really like. Um, uh, it's it's just state of the art, whatever. And it was like eighteen bucks for two tickets. <laughs> wow. I will say though, I did. I'm looking at the receipt now. I did get a link to download a, a soundtrack song for free. So I still need to redeem that. Like yeah, a soundtrack, also, like a song from the movie, just like maybe a bunch of guys grunting and like water rushing in. Is or, that or like a watch ticking? You know? A watch. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you guys claim re- to be very interested in critics, and we have uh, City Pulse's own Eric Bailey with us, and, and you're just <laughs> talking over him the whole damn time. Eric, what uh, screen did you see this on? I saw this. Um, I've seen it twice. Um, when I the first time I went and saw it on just a regular digital IMAX screen, so I haven't seen it on film at all. And the second time was just a regular DCP screen. Um, so yeah, I also haven't really seen it, even though I've. You know, so take my review with a grain of salt, I suppose. Um, but yeah, um, I, I, I'm my thing with the with the response to it is I got this sense that most people were comparing it 
you know, even if they didn't mention it to Interstellar, which was kind of this like huge, like really mixed film. Some people thought it was an utter disaster. Yeah, um, it was, and, including mm-hmm. myself. <laughs> um, but I, I, I felt like, in a way, yes, it is a better movie than Interstellar in a lot of ways, and I feel like it, it, it's one of those like comparison effects that like just because it's not this piece of crap it's suddenly a masterpiece and i feel like a lot of people want to like want to like nolan more than they actually like nolan as a filmmaker that's that's my take at least on the consensus and the response of it yeah it's probably also like a reaction of like being like populist as a form of not being a snob you know like like it's sort of like this weird like reverse snobbery well yeah i mean i think nolan represent i mean nolan to me is very representative of like he reminds me much of of like the what what truffaut coined like the tradition of quality which was the the kind of french studio Mm -hmm. film system that the new wave rebelled against like nolan to me feels very much like he's the representative of the modern tradition of quality huge budgets huge amount of planning meticulous production top quality everything there's the money spent like they retrofitted theaters to run it in 70 mil etc i mean it's it's a it's there's a lot to this in terms of kind of unifying cinema and kind of you know and it's being pitched as like you know uh what you say like a redeeming of a film celluloid you know that you have to see it in part we're joking about about how you have to see it on film etc but nolan is one of the only directors with the clout to push film back into regular theaters so i think it has all of those elements which means i think a lot of critics are they want to like nolan like eric said i think and and several of them apparently really do like him which is slightly more confusing to me not that i dislike i like i generally enjoy nolan's films it's just that i think they're always they come with as many head-scratching problems as they do real genuine rewards and not just problems because they're like oh what really happened in inception how many layers of inceptions are there you know like i couldn't (laughs) give a shit really about that because it's it's you know it's a little puzzle box but like nolan's films are not about the real world they've never really struck a chord to the real world and dunkirk is interesting because it's probably his it's his most a stripped out film you know he's known as meticulous planner to kind of construct these little puzzle box films with a lot of like nuanced narrative layers and so on um and this film is pretty much it's a straight up war film it's still got a couple of little flare flourishes like it's got three timelines and i still like christopher nolan he can't make a film without giving instructions to the audience and i <laughs> burst out laughing at the very first scene where because there's three separate timelines the mole land and sea and something else who cares and um each one is introduced on the screen and they have the timeline written underneath so like the mole which is on the beach is one week and then the uh, what is i guess the boats are are one day and then the air the in in the air is is one hour and he like writes that up there just you know as if to like instruct you on how you're supposed to process it even though it's not as far as i can tell and i've seen some people arguing against it but or you know arguing for it but it's not to me a particularly meaningful construction those no. different different timelines yeah. but he still has to push it out there as like here's how you have to watch it here's what i'm doing well, that's part of, like, the larger Nolan thing that, like, there's a great piece on com that talked about this, too, where um, he doesn't make movies for, like, he doesn't he doesn't want audiences to interpret movies. Like, obviously, like, every audience member is going to, is going to have a separate, unique interpretation, but uh, he's sort of, like, 
uh, pro auteurist in, in in this way where it's just like my message is the one that counts, and whether it's that or like saying or you know subscribing how you should be uh, subjecting yourself to this movie, it's it's very much like manipulation of the audience as another part of the movie, and it's really frustrating. Um, because that's not how cinema works, but apparently he's the master of cinema. <laughs> so does does a plane like fly through a bookshelf to alert the mole as to how to survive? <laughs> the mole is inside a bookshelf, and um, he's reading um, dust particles, and he's uh, telling the he's telling Kenneth Branagh about how he was uh, his brother in an alternate time. Uh, but the only way that he can get him to realize this is 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 by reading the dust as binary code. Yeah, and that's when Brana takes off his shirt and he's tattooed just all the plans for World War II <laughs> on the back. <laughs> and are there any Michael Caine poetry readings? Michael Caine does have a cameo in this, and he's, the, um, he's yeah. the dispatcher. He's the he's the commander for Tom Hardy's pilot character, isn't he? Yeah, which which led yeah, which led to one of my favorite things, which is I think Slate, who are the one of the the master online publication publishers of just completely frivolous articles. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa! That's that's my that's my employer. You're talking. <laughs> so um, they they had an article about like you know Michael Caine had a cameo in Dunkirk, and you probably didn't even know, and it's true because he spoke like three lines, and it doesn't matter. And it's so, terrible too. So yeah, and it's terrible. Like, so it's just Michael Caine. Nobody did though. except for Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah, they had to tell people afterwards. Like, by the way, that's that's Michael Caine, which exactly. I think is a really, which is I think is a really powerful image for the cinema of Christopher Nolan. I, that they had to like <laughs> tell you, you know, like by the way, you should probably take it seriously. That's a great I, metaphor. Speaking of like these three timelines, like honestly, um, I was confused at the movie, and I've seen also like on film Twitter this like discourse about like how calling it confusing is dumb, and I'm like. Uh, I found it confusing. Maybe that makes me dumb. I don't know. Would I like to consider myself like a grown adult who's like seen movies it's, and knows how to read movies? Me, it's difficult for me to tell. I don't know. Like, cause I didn't really feel confused anytime, but I think there's also a certain point in the movie where I didn't really care how those things interlinked. Right. So I might, I might've just been convinced myself I wasn't confused. And, um, Yeah. And as Sam Adams, uh, who I think writes for Slate as well, but I remember him saying, like, uh, the second time he went to see it, he's like, yeah, I I realized that um, not knowing which one was Harry Styles was not a a flaw but a feature. And it's just like, I can't comprehend how that would ever be meaningful in this movie. Who the fuck is Harry Styles? I mean, I know the name. He's a pop star, apparently. I, do, I still don't know who he was in the he's movie. A, he's an actor. He, that's all you need to know is he's an actor. In this he's movie. a haircut. He was the, like, the the lead character who, I don't even, there, did anybody even catch the characters' names in this movie? No. Do no, they even have anywhere. any? I think he was the one that, one that was suspicious of the mole, right? Yeah, that was him. Yeah, he's the racist one. Oh, good to know. <laughs> yeah. Wow, I but, no, this is but a- that's another thing that's really bothering me about this movie is people are saying like, "Oh my God, this is probably my favorite Tom Hardy role." He, this is not an actor's showcase for anyone. <laughs> no. Tom Hardy just showed up and performed. Also, you need like emotions for like uh, an actor showcase. Usually, he just so much with his eyes. I, yeah, I, 
I'm go- I'm going to be that guy, Jack, and say that like I am impressed just like how like engaged I was with that character and that storyline just from well, the, the fact I, that I think Tom the plane, spent most- the fact that it's Tom Hardy really helps. Yes, <laughs> the, the plane section is by far and away the best section of the movie. Oh god! Yes. Honestly, if if I could take that out and transpose that out, that's actually a pretty solid kind of. And if nothing else, has like a throwback to like Wings, you know, like an early silent yeah. movie with the flying. It's it's really it's nice. I think I think Richard Brody like he compared it to stuff like Only Angels Have Wings, like Howard mm-hmm. Hawks' movie, and like he he made a great point that you know anytime you get like aerial action sequences like that, it's going to be compelling. It's just naturally cinematic. So like, there's no way yeah. to screw that up. So that's not necessarily a testament to Nolan's like skill no. as a filmmaker. It's no. just like the weirdest just... thing. The weirdest thing for me was just prior to seeing Dunkirk, I went to a screening of Top Gun, another exemplary <laughs> film about war. And uh, what's really weird is before the showing of Top Gun, they screened uh, the five minute, thing for for dunkirk and there's a scene in dunkirk where where tom uh, what's tom hardy's communicating with his his other airman in the sky to like bank left so that they can pull draw out the enemy plane to shoot it kind of draw it across tom hardy's sight so he can he can shoot it um and in top gun there's a scene that is literally almost identically shot identically planned except with like f-15 fighter jets and it was just the weirdest thing to see this overlay like i wasn't anticipating this in watching these movies in that way but yeah i was like well i guess nothing's really changed so you know as you say yeah. like flying is, is naturally compelling and it seems like apparently there's only like three things that anyone could think to do in a movie when you're flying anyway so Although no one, Tom Hardy doesn't do like a flyby of the tower and cause anyone to spill their coffee, so missed yeah, opportunity no, there. And he doesn't made fly up, of, upside down and yeah, give him a finger. Should have made, made a bunch of Nazis spill their hot coffee on themselves and flipped them the bird. <laughs> did, did Jeff Daniels also have a cameo? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he he was uh, in his Escanaba in the Moonlight character. <laughs> yeah. well, that he was, was just like perfect. farting. <laughs> but what, what, I, what I'm thinking about this movie, like my, my view on this film, uh, one of the things I took away from it is is the idea a lot of people are like it's it's a sensory overload and people are always about like it's so loud it's so intense it's just very stripped out there's not a lot of dialogue that it's kind of fractured in its timelines it's very it feels messy but it's it's obviously a very carefully orchestrated messy but um and Christopher Nolan describes it as virtual reality um. And this kind of pisses me off because war is like people are like, oh, it's just it's like like feels like a real war. And it's like, that's complete garbage. It doesn't feel like a war. I've never been in a war, but I can understand that if I were ever in a war, it would be something much more completely imperceptible and insane and overwhelming. And just it's not something a film can do. A film can't emulate that. And this idea that just by being loud and having Hans Zimmer's <laughs> score just pound you and tell you how yeah. to feel that this is somehow creating a, a, a kind of a, a culpable reality is to me right. just completely nonsensical. It's a stupid goal. And the idea that he achieved this goal is even more insulting, honestly. And um, a film that I think really kind of is still like people at the same time, people are like, it's a really powerful film that evokes a, a real sense of war. And at the same time, it's also like, it's a bloodless war movie. It's not showing you the gore that's oh, been God. done. It's showing you the real spirit of war. And it's not doing either of those things. I mean, it's better. Like than I've Axel seen Ridge. Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> I've been through the war. I've been through the wars. I've sat through Axel Ridge. 
God. Which, to be fair, is actually a fair equivalent of something deeply unpleasant. I don't know if it's war, but uh. but yeah. So, so this was something that struck me, and also like mentioning Hans Zimmer's score. I think Hans Zimmer's score for this film is actually stupendous. I think it's a superb piece of music and accompaniment. It's it's got a lot of like these ticking sounds, like a ticking clock for time. It's got a lot of these kind of heavy percussive yeah. elements. It's not like a, a symphonic score. It's more sounds and, and kind of yeah. uh, heightened kind of uh, sensations and stuff. The only problem is that I think it's superb, but that combining it with the movie makes it something that honestly is kind of deeply offensive to my senses in a way because it's it's kind of forcing you to feel things or or to like it's 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 trying to push it push you into a space it's not kind of like supporting it it's not building a case it's trying to get to like get to the finish point or just start at the finish point and go there you go you know we're like we just hit you with all this barrage of noise and you're clearly moved richard brody talked about that as well as like not not trusting your image like not trusting your abilities to use images to draw out like empathy and sympathy yeah, yeah. I like I I agree with Jack that like the score on its own works really well. I was actually like writing my review to the score. Like I just found the score on YouTube somewhere, and I just yeah, I, I would listen but, to that separately. And, no and problem. It, and it's and it's great. Like it's really good, especially like the last two pieces of music where it's like the you know the kind of big inspirational like ending music that plays right before the. It's, it's like you know it's a little corny, but it's good. And mm-hmm. I sort of wish this had been applied to a separate movie or like been applied more creatively i I really wish dunkirk were much more of like a silent movie in in regards of in regards to its music like i really wish nolan would have just said like you know what let's just keep like just a couple minutes of music here and there when when it needs it instead of just barraging you with it the entire time I feel, like, I feel like I would have enjoyed yeah. the movie much more if he had done that. Yeah, it, it just feels dishonest to me. I, like, it's kind of a, a it's a formal glitch to me. It, it's a wrong-headed kind of philosophy of filmmaking, which I think Christopher Nolan, I could probably accuse him of that on several levels. But this, this is, if this is a war film and he's trying to, let it, like, I mean, we could go into political elements of this. It's got some weird, like, this is a classic war movie, but it's a, a Brexit war movie at this point and it's kind of like the home fire is burning and it's it disembodies like it removes further i mean firstly every single soldier and it's basically a white guy uh, which wasn't the case with actual dunkirk and so they've removed anyone who wasn't white they've removed the germans pretty much they're just a couple of machine guns uh, they treat anyone else who's there dutch or french they treat them like sniveling cowards or outliers um mm-hmm. but they don't they don't posit that in any kind of a meaningful sense it's a film that I think comes with a lot of troubling uh, elements that he, that Nolan had, makes absolutely no effort to comment on or contextualize or build on. And really, in the which, end, it's just an assault. Which, like, is weird because for a guy who's at least supposedly so meticulous and worships, like, Stanley Kubrick, who was, like, the master of detail and everything, it's like, how do you not... Unless he's just completely unaware of, like, a lot of what you know, what the, a lot of political discussions about immigrants and like how, you know, this kind of stuff comes across in a movie, unless he's completely unaware of that stuff. Like, why does he let that stuff in there? Unless he's like, I don't, I, I feel, I, I feel like Christopher Nolan does. I think he's, he's, ex, he researches extensively, but I'm pretty sure he researches, researches extensively on little technical trinkets. 
And yeah. that's like that's the movie, and that's all of his movies. Like I always describe his movies as like little puzzle boxes, and they're like yeah. intricately constructed and really nice little moving parts, and they all fit together. And like you, you feel he puts everything together, and then he's really proud at how everything fits together so well. Yeah. But there's nothing real in it. It's just it's a puzzle box. It's yeah. outside yeah. of the real it's like, world. I've, it's it's yeah. it's such a weird movie. Like it's it like when you, especially when you get into like that political side of it like it's just like there are times where it feels like like i i one thing i that struck me both times i saw it is like you know these soldiers are jerks frankly like they <laughs> like they're so mistrustful of like not just the french or the dutch and, the, and like you know other nationalities but like of each other and like they, they like they're not these like selfless heroes that like you know, oh, you know, everybody's, you know, going to help my fellow soldiers and, you know, like, it, it's not like yeah. a Saving Private Ryan situation. where Which, like, which is interesting um, because one of the things I struck, because people are talking about Tom Hardy and he's amazing, you know, in the movie and everything. And I just, he's fine. He's good. Really, to me, the standout performance in the movie, the only real interesting character in the entire movie is Killian Murphy as yeah. a soldier who's rescued and he's shell-shocked and traumatized and he... With he he ends up injuring another character in what while reject because he because he realizes he gets pulled out of the ocean he's pulled into the boat and he realizes he's not being rescued he's being brought right back to where he started because they're going to collect soldiers at Dunkirk and he freaks out and he pushes a kid down some stairs while he's freaking out and the kid bangs his head and is seriously injured See, and I think you're just things, saying that because he's Irish n- not really <laughs> but maybe. But um, so so they put, so they they pull it back, and there's literally the only thing from the film that I think is actually a, an interesting element. And again, like Nolan always does, it's completely isolated. The movie can't really consider anything useful to do with it. At the end of the movie, Killian Murphy is brought ashore. They make their way back to, to England. He's rescued. He goes back. There's a hero's welcome for all of the soldiers. They're given hot mugs of hot tea and jam and bread to kind of get their strength up and pat it on the back. And everyone's like, hooray. And Killian Murphy is, is, is integrated. He's assimilated into that crowd of hero's welcome. But he knows he just killed a boy, basically, while freaking out. And there's this kind of incredible, there's this feeling of this kind of this banal kind of tragedy that's happened that he's going to carry with him on top of the trauma of being in a war on top of, as we might say, the political things, because something that's never really addressed in this movie is the idea that, really, why was World War II fought? It wasn't because everyone was great and brave and Hitler was evil. It was because rich people stripped out Germany after World War One, you know, and then they bring in Churchill's, you know, heroic words at the end, and it's like, it's just, uh, you know, there's, there's, you could read this whole thing from a leftist perspective and come up with a really you could really hate this movie a lot from that perspective, <laughs> you know, And but Killian Murphy, to me, that that image of him being brought back in and assimilating into the crowd and what he might carry with him for the rest of his life from war, from a situation he never really had full control over. That's the most interesting thing in the movie. And I don't think Nolan even fully understands it or even realizes it. It's just kind of like, we're, we're done. Good. Let's move back on to the next scene. Now, now Jack, I hate to correct you, but, uh, Perhaps the European conflict was fought uh, due to some post-World War One politics, but World War Two was fought because of Pearl Harbor. <laughs> that's that's right. That is when that started. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. It was very complex. I mean, war is very complex, but we have to understand it's mostly awesome. So and that's mostly <laughs> no, that, what that's mostly um, what Christopher I, Nolan's message is. It's pretty cool because yeah. it's so. 
And that, and that's um, pretty like contingent, I guess, on this experience in the cinema, which makes me kind of like uh, want to like shortly like discuss like sort of the afterlife of Dunkirk in the theaters. Which, um, uh, if we use gravity um, as a touch point, um, which I mean, gravity is a different movie. It's a better movie in my opinion, but that doesn't matter. Um, yeah. But I mean, people loved it when it came out. Like it, it was, it was highly lauded, and uh, it was also one of these things where you had to see it in IMAX 3D, and uh, it was, it was great. Like it, it, it made great use of that at least. But um, I mean, I've bought it on DVD because I found it at like a Goodwill or something like that. But I, I'm, I don't plan on watching it anytime soon. Maybe I will, and it, and maybe it'll be fine. But nobody talks about Gravity anymore. It won like. I can't remember if it won Best Picture or it was like Best Director. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then it, but, Best Picture that year. right, but it was sort of like neck and neck. It was it was sort of like um, yeah. this past year um, with uh, God La La Land. La La Land. It, it was sort of like that same situation where it, it could have gone either way, um, but n- nobody talks about it at all. And um, I mean, I know that. <laughs> I, I mean, Quaron isn't like as huge of a, a a figure as Nolan and I think that that'll like Nolan bros are a fierce contingent so um I'm I'm sure like the, you know they're not going to back down on this like or reevaluate it or whatever but um maybe they will who knows so maybe this will just be like um not yeah, thought of as as important. I think it's, it's bringing I mean I, I feel like what's happening in the golden age of television in which we live where there's a lot of very high profile TV we're we're seeing this resurrection I think of cinema as spectacle um and the big film is becoming increasingly pressing and stuff like Gravity and Dunkirk are very much positing themselves and Valerian actually which I kind of regret not going to see uh, just cuz that sounds absurd you can still find it yeah, I might, I might be able to, but like these, they're positing themselves as really films you have to see in theater because they're just sensory overload. They're just huge and they just beat you, which is, it's a thing you can do, but I'm just not sure it's a very sustainable format because like you say, outside it, like I saw Gravity in IMAX 3D and I very much enjoyed it. I think it's a very good movie, but I couldn't, like, I, no, I'm not going to watch it again probably ever unless it shows i might if it shows up in a repertory theater playing in a big format i might go and see it again just because it's big and swirly and cool looking but it's not yeah. exactly a movie that changes anything for you you let yeah. the dogs out i'm so sorry i think the diff- i think the big <laughs> difference between Dun- something like dunkirk and gravity would be that like gravity still there's emotions in gravity yes <laughs> um <laughs> There's actual characters who I care about, but um, uh, I think Gravity. I think I watched it fairly recently, or I watched like most of it. I just caught it while channel surfing on HBO or something one time, and like it still works on a TV screen. Like it's still mm-hmm. it like I it, it's still just like this is good. I'm in, I'm into it. I'm enjoying this. I don't know if I'm going to feel the same thing about Dunkirk because like there yes right. there was a lot of like the big sound design and the music and everything and the big screen sort of yes it, it did win me over a little bit with Dunkirk because it's just like it's so big it's so loud it's so intense um but I feel like watching this on like my TV screen at home I'm just not going to get that it's just it's it's going to throw up the movie's flaws into even starker relief I think yeah, and I think that's that's kind of the big thing. I think that's what's really going to hurt 
Dunkirk's sort of afterlife, if you will, is just that it's not really anything when you take away that gigantic screen. Yeah, I feel like we're we're getting to this stage with the sensory cinema, which is very much what Nolan was openly courting. That I mean, it's a dead end aesthetic route, and all it means is things are just going to get louder and kind of more kind of barrel like cameras with with particularly with digital cinema and digital editing. You can just kind of barrel cameras through a huge amount of action, very in, you know, and kind of scrutinize details in a way that you couldn't in in traditional filmmaking um, and traditional special effects. And it's just sort of like these films are almost getting to a point where you're going to like, I feel like a lot of people who are, who came out positively for Dunkirk, it's almost like a shell shock reaction to itself. It's just, it's very big and it hits you square in the chest and it's like seats vibrate and everything. And you come out and you're like, well, that must've been something because it was so, you know, so, so physical. Um, and yeah. then, yeah, like, and then, then you walk away, like, and literally, you know, like we've been saying, a couple of days later, you know, when a lot of people see, a lot of people saw it, the first couple of weeks, it stayed number one cinema or number one film, in the box office for several weeks. Everyone's seen it. Now I don't hear anyone talking about it. I don't hear anyone particularly, you know, conjuring up about. And like, aside from one or two people, I don't know of anyone who's like, you know, went to see it multiple times. I don't know. I'm sure they're out there. I'm, most so certainly, Eric. yeah, Eric. Eric, come on, that's true. But yeah, <laughs> two I, I, times. I feel like, yeah, I, I feel like the the sort of like honeymoon phase is is worn off, and it's like oh, I'm not really thinking about that movie anymore. I don't know. I, I saw somebody. I, I saw Kyle Buchanan, who writes for Vulture. He's kind of like a entertainment reporter. I really like him. He, I I love his like, yeah, Oscar coverage towards the end of the year and. I saw him saying that, like, he's pretty sure that it's going to be an Oscar contender. I'm like, are people going to remember it come January? Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like, like it's sound design, probably. Yeah, people sound design and maybe editing, them. and that's it. It'll get yeah. a nod. I better look at a nom for both oh, yeah. future. I mean, with like nine or whatever. Yeah. Okay. I, you know, I think I'm going to hold off until they actually install gun turrets in the theater so that I can (laughs) really feel the horrors of war. The real Uh, optimal version is where you get sat beside a German person in the movie and you just get to shoot them a dirty look every time and just say, you did this. That's like the ultimate war movie experience. You know, I, I'm probably meant to wrangle this conversation. I, I've let it, <laughs> I've let it go a long time. I'm okay with that. We're not dirty rush here, but um, probably should start to wrap it up. Yeah, so let's I, move on. Yeah, I think what you're saying is this movie. If it were based, uh, if we were rating it on the basis of the soundtrack, we'd give it a ten. Uh, but you could honestly say the same thing about Hans Zimmer's score for Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. So that's uh, kind of mixed praise it, it, it the soundtrack does not make the film unfortunately but uh i i think you guys have convinced me and i am going to see this film on my samsung vr there you i was go. hoping you were going to enlist in the air force fuck it i i don't think they'd have me <laughs> what are you poor <laughs> I am poor. <laughs> uh, Wait, do you okay. have to pay to be in the Air Force? You got to be rich, otherwise you go in the Army. That's Those are the rules, Jake. Oh, okay, okay. that's fair. Uh, you, you probably have to have a level of physical fitness that I haven't possessed in decades. <laughs> also 2020 vision or some something, I don't know, but whatever. Uh, yeah, so let's move on from this technical <laughs> spectacle to a, a film that was seemingly designed to be shown on Instagram. 
Uh, <laughs> Jesus, I, I'm very, I'm very interested interested to hear from a couple of these gentlemen as to how they possibly enjoyed a ghost story. Uh, let's let's start with Jake. Yeah, um, I don't know what you're talking about. I love ghost story. Um, I, I've been giving this a lot of thought, and it, it's not really. I don't know. Easy, know. easy, easy for me to articulate my feelings about it because it's just such a. I think it's such a strange and odd and beautiful film. Um, but it really worked for me. The the lo-fi everything just sort of just it just worked. And and I'm I apologize right now that my argument may not seem that strong and is probably going to get the cat the crap kicked out of it by uh you no, jake jake you, <laughs> but, you yeah. won me yeah. over you won me over I love it. <laughs> yep. it was lo-fi uh, i get it it yeah. worked for jake <laughs> uh what about eric oh my god oh god i'm um, sorry eric I'm, <laughs> no i'm because i'm sorry too for anybody who might be listening to this who's hoping that jake and i might have with these like lucid defenses for the film because I know Adam, Sean, and Jack are just gonna crap all over it. <laughs> um, but like I, I, I'm kind of with Jake too. It's just it's 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 hard to describe why I liked it. It's just it's one of those movies that just kind of it's just right in my wheelhouse. It's a it's it's I like mood movies personally, and it's it's same here. It's a it's a it's a really moody movie, and I kind of just like it when. I get the sense that a filmmaker's kind of just letting me into their head a little bit. And, you know, I know obviously the rest of you guys me too. didn't, you know, I like that too. And <laughs> obviously you guys didn't, obviously you guys didn't like what you, what David Lowry had to show you what was in his head. But like, for me, I just, I kind of like when I'm just seeing something very singular and personal like that, whatever it means, if it means anything, yeah. um, I, I appreciate that most of all about it. I, the sense I that say, David Lowry must be a very boring person. <laughs> well, I will say, like, just just um, uh, one of my main things that I want to say, just because it sort of like uh, it goes straight from that idea of like um, somebody putting like his mind on screen or, or you know his thoughts just like laid bare. Um, there's a moment during the so for the entirety of the movie. Um, I felt like I was trying. I, I was trying to get let into whatever, whatever this vision was, and and it just like kept me at arm's length, and it was very frustrating. And uh, but there was a point where where I was like, oh okay, like cool, like this is about um, like a house, like this is about the memories, like like personified, like in a house of the, this time. It, it's representing this time that you spend in a house. That that like only this physical space holds um, these very uh, non tangible things, and it's is it's this weird um, weird reality, a weird way that we compart- compartmentalize our memory our memories inside these spaces. I thought that he was trying to like sort of convey that, um, and apparently, from what I've heard from other like critics like who have interviewed David Laurie, like this story was inspired by like him not wanting to move um and like his family or his wife wanting to move and him just like not wanting to leave this house cuz he loved this house so much um so basically he's Casey Affleck which is great look for him um but uh 
uh, anyway, I, I got so frustrated when I heard that um, that little tidbit because I felt like he abandoned that um, as soon as I as soon as I started to be able to make sense of like some sort of thesis there. Um, it, it got abandoned for this this other thing that was much more existential and more much more personal. Um, and so uh, as far as being able to be led into his head, uh, I know that's like an extra textual fact, but man, it, it's. I don't feel like that's what this movie conveys, or at least not to me. Yeah, I, th- I think there's... Out of curiosity, what do you think it conveys, if anything? Um, I, 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 I think that that's part of the trouble is, like, there are a few different times where I was like, okay, this is, this is kind of what I think, but I, I think it's like, um, I keep hearing this word grief, and my question is, who... Like who's gr- grieving? Like obviously not the per- not the relationship because the relationship doesn't really mean anything in the in the film. It, it sort of is a time marker more than anything else. Um, I, I think like I think that um, I mean I mean she moves on and, and it doesn't. If that's what it's about, it doesn't convey it very well either to me. Like it doesn't seem like he's this character is broken up about this this woman um, very much. It seems much larger than that. Um, in terms of what it what it's trying to be yeah, about, it, it, it shifts it shifts from the personal to the cosmological, essentially, which is something that's kind of several films of over the last couple of years have have done as well. I feel like to me the film feels a lot like Lowry kind of saw some movies he thought were was really good and he decided he'd make one, and that's like to me the film. At its best, and I, I really, I like the first twenty minutes. I think the film looks great. I kind of like the way it was. It, it really has a lot of promise. And then there comes a certain point where I'm like, I don't think this movie's going to teach me anything or make me think a different way about anything. You know, there's kind of just that feeling where, like, because I, I love mood movies too. I love like a tone poem kind of film that just sets kind of a, a, an, a space that you can kind like of Dunkirk. explore, like Dunkirk, which the space is like the rabid looning, like whatever just loudness um but this movie is it's kind of like quiet and unassuming and it's just empty like a lot of the compositions are characters kind of in in negative space and rooms um it seems like it could be it could go anywhere and it doesn't to me it doesn't really go anywhere at all but it still takes the time to point you in directions to kind of try and prod you in certain ways there's an early scene in it where there's like a, a ghostly poltergeisty freak out and a copy of a nietzsche text is dropped on the floor <laughs> prominently displayed and it's suddenly i'm so i'm immediately thinking okay so nietzsche is a formative thing here and of course the film will go on cosmologically to go into a essentially endless recurrence which is one of nietzsche's perceptions of time about how the universe will perpetually repeat itself and that there's you know and will constantly reconstitute itself identically time and time again um and the film basically does that to a degree although there's a, he i guess the ghost escapes that but then again we don't know how it will loop back in again and um, we have a horrible scene and honestly i think for me in a lot of ways this there's two scenes in the movie that sink it for me and the first scene is is rooney mara and the infamous pie devouring yes. scene which was that I'm was gonna go scene. on record and say i love the pie scene <laughs> yeah I, another I will... scene that that is like oh, about oh, grief God. but it doesn't go anywhere like it's like wait how that important was, is this grief scene. to the movie yeah That's that was the, the scene that was the scene that i was watching and i was i had like three minutes in i was like shit this movie's not gonna go anywhere like i just got that feeling at that point yeah and I, was, no, I, I was involved agree. in the film at that point and i just kind of went like 
oh no, no, this is going badly because this is not this is not a film about or like this scene does not communicate grief. And the this, strings are showing. The strings are yeah, showing at that point. Exactly. This, this scene doesn't communicate grief. This scene communicates two things to me. It communicates that Rooney Mara was really brave because she ate a pie in a lengthy scene and didn't look sexy while doing it. <laughs> and that's very brave for an actress. And secondly, it communicates this kind of really awful kind of teen angst and navel gazing of like, what would it be like to be around to see your loved ones like born for you afterwards? If you could see them, like how, you know, like how much would they care? You know, how would like to, to see that? And it just seemed like such a, just a banal kind of navel gazy kind of perspective on it. Cause, cause Casey Affleck is just standing there under a sheet for the whole scene, watching her scoff a pie. And it's like, at that point, I was just got this feeling like something else has to happen in this film. Like, it's been pretty much empty blank canvas up until now. Something else has to happen to redirect this or else this movie is garbage. <laughs> Nothing else happens. <laughs> right, yeah. See, I, I, I just found, like, if you want a movie that's a tone poem, it should have a consistent tone and this this did not at all it yeah it, and then the second the second scene just to clarify because that's the first scene throwing off the second scene is will oldham fucking ruining a perfectly nice party by pontificating about man's search for meaning not the it was so you were on board during the the scene where he's uh poltergeisting the only people of color oh that, <laughs> that scene uh, Sorry, that scene I actually just kind of ignored entirely because that just didn't seem like it was relevant to anything. But like, the, basically, there's a scene where where a character at a party gives out a lengthy diatribe that's basically like the cliff notes for the movie. Again, it's like Christopher Nolan. It's like here's how you know this movie is pretty is pretty you know zany. It's a bit of a trip. Let me show you how to gain. You know, like here's the door. You can pull it open. You can walk on in. And it's like the movie would be. The movie, I don't think it would be, honestly, I don't think it would be good still, but honestly, if they cut that one scene with, with that guy right. in that speech, it would be a much better movie for me. It would at least give me a little bit of space where I could say, at least I've got some autonomy in here. So I had like an opposite reaction to what Jack and the others, except for Eric, had. Um, the first 20 minutes, okay, so I went into this movie knowing almost nothing about it. I'd seen the trailer play a couple times, but I didn't read a synopsis or anything. I just knew that uh, Casey Affleck dies. He comes back as the ghost cheat, and he just goes on this quest for meaningless or desire or to reunite with his wife or whatever. But I... The, so the first 20 minutes, I didn't really... I wasn't quite sure what to think of the movie because I didn't know what direction it was going in. And then once the pie scene happens, which I think is probably the most polarizing scene in the film it's yeah it's the it's the maker or breaker for any viewer and that i was just i just jumped on board immediately it just i don't know it just touched me in this very profound way that i hadn't experienced in a long while in the movies and just watching rooney mara stab and tear away at this dessert as she you know force feeds herself it and then the ghost going on this journey that eventually spans centuries through like such dynamic editing and it even seems like will oldham's speechifying didn't even like they didn't bother me because i i, I just, just did not know what was going to happen next and <laughs> i just found just so much but there's just so much immense beauty in every shot and I, I don't know. I just feel like this is the kind of film that uh, it is a mood film and it, whether or not you think it has no consistent tone, but it's just I thought it was a very much a singular viewing experience. Yeah. I, for, 
for me, for me, the um, pie scene, like I, I was just reminded of as I was thinking about it before we started the podcast. Um, did has everybody watched? I think they're up to like thirteen episodes now. Of Twin Peaks. The last night was the thirteenth episode, and it ended with no. this lovely little moment of um, Ed just sitting alone in the gas station. And it's nothing. Else, nothing else happens except for that. Except he just sits there and he kind of like eats soup, and he watches the cars pass out in front of the gas. And like it's literally just this two minute scene that plays under the the credits like that. And reminded me of the pie scene a little bit, where it's like nothing happens except Rooney Mara just eats pie for yeah, five but, for like seven minutes. And, yeah. But but I. I think that's what's great about it. It's just like it's just this little moment, like with with Ed on Twin Peaks. It's just this little moment where it's like he's kind of just having this lonely moment, um, in his gas station where just nobody's around, and he just kind of feels a little sad, and it just stays there with him for a second. But, and, but, and, but and, Ed is and, an established character. He's someone I have a yes. reason to give a shit about. Yes, but, um, but like and. and it just yeah. doesn't read as it doesn't it doesn't read to me like I, I think a very for anyone who hasn't seen the movie if they're considering it because it's clear it is a polarizing movie uh, I would say Richard Linklater is is the probably a, a very good kind of barometer for this if you if you like his films I have a feeling like if you like waking yeah up, if you like like the particular, Newton Boys. And School of Rock. <laughs> you like School of Rock? Get, get yeah. out of here, Richard Linklater. Get the- no, no, no. If you like, if you like Waking Life, I feel like this is a movie you can probably get on board with because they both, to me, have the same, the very same kind of tone to them, which is they're both very much and a freshman philosophy class. Exactly. This, like, that's what I felt, and this is literally how I felt sitting through both Waking Life and uh, a Ghost Story. It felt like I was cornered by a uh, like freshman bro who just attended his first philosophy 101 class thought it was pretty cool and wanted to try and misexplain the the curriculum back to me <laughs> and that's what the movie felt like to me it felt I like watched like a bergman movie or something yeah it, it felt like a poorly and this is the reason why a lot of it does it doesn't work for me because yeah there's a tone to it but to me it's a completely false kind of childish kind of like adolescent tone same with winking life it's a movie that just absolutely grates me the wrong way um, and it's just a, a large part of that. It's just that there's this feeling of uh, someone else described it um, in a really a really great review. Someone described it as an ex- someone uh, an existential crisis or a film that was fueled by an existential crisis by someone who's never thought about existence before. <laughs> that's what, it, and I think that's a superb way of putting it. It's um, a movie that just. Um, it lack it just lacks any kind of intellectual impetus. It's got these signposts that they kind of cribbed from other better filmmakers. Um, it's got a couple of big questions that are big questions, but there's no useful spin on it. There's no useful insight to it. By the end of this movie, I was just watching, going like, "Shit!" Like they they quote Ghost in the Shell the, in the same year the movie was remade. And they've seen in the mood for love. Yeah, and the, yeah, like there's one scene where the ghost is up in a big building when it, and he jumps off the edge of the building. I'm like, that's uh, Scarlett Johansson just did that earlier the same year in a movie that was actually better than this movie without being a good movie. And that's, you know, like to me, it's just it's one of those films that like the cosmological turn felt totally wayward listing. A lot of people are like, what, what is the movie about? It could be about anything. You really, you, you can invest yourself, but I really don't feel like David Lowry has a useful perspective on anything within this film. I don't think he learned anything from the movie 
I'm certainly never going to learn anything from the movie, and I'm never going to re-examine what I know in a useful new context with this, which is what I think a better film could do. You know, like Tree of Life, the Malick film, which really I think is is a major uh, kind of touching point for this mm-hmm. film as well. Malick has a perspective. He has a, a drive in intellectual inquiry. This movie really doesn't. It's just like, wouldn't it? You know, it, Lowry just seems to have this idea that minimalism equals content, and it doesn't. Minimalism has to be framed. It has to be corralled into a into some kind of a context and a vehicle for meaning. As I said, I would like as I wrote about this movie earlier, and I think like my summation really is like it's not minimalism; it's just minimal. There's there's no content here. There's you know it, it's a film that just it kind of exists in an empty, barren space, and they think that being empty and barren is the same as being rife with meaning that you because you can go anywhere with it. But really, there's despite his kind of and his his kind of annoying signpost he throws in, I don't want to go anywhere in this movie, and it does look really nice and everything, but it's just like. I I, don't, I have no interest in exploring this terrain because it's just kind of a boring adolescent kind of jerk-off fantasy, effectively, uh, with kind of a veneer of quality over the top based on the fact that it's just very nicely shot and very sparsely presented. You know, it's, it's basically this feels to me like kind of a... a where you say like it's it's basically art cinema by someone with no artfulness, and that's you know it's a it's a, a facsimile of a much much better movie without the inner life. So yeah, that's that's me, uh, <laughs> Jack. <laughs> I just I don't know, I just don't know what you're talking about. Th- this movie was totally framed. <laughs> wow! I did, I did like they, they zoom they zoom out the image. So like throughout the whole movie, it's presenting your Academy ratio. So it's in a squarer format, that kind of older school format. Um, the edges of the frame are visible, the little rounded edges, which is something you often see in old Polaroids, but also in very old films. If they're a lot of times in old remasterings of movies, like very silent movies, they often get the aspect ratio a little wrong, or they overprotect the frame and they end up zooming out and you can see the actual curved edges of the frame it gives this really nice old timey feel to the composition it kind of gives this wistful kind of nostalgic air to it i like that i was on board for all of that i thought you know this this movie could really be something and i think i saw this movie before like i i saw this movie at uh, the chicago critics film festival it was the first playing of the movie outside of sundance where it premiered so I saw this movie kind of before it really had hit anywhere. So there was the hype from Sundance and then I caught it and it was like, even the guys at the critics festival were hyping it up. They were like, you know, this is, you know, this, it was the last night at the critics festival. It was, it was the, the final film. They were hyping this as being like the best movie of the whole thing. And it wasn't, there are better movies. Columbus is opening wide. I saw that there too. It's much better. Go see that. And um, yeah. And it's, it's like, it was all framed like that, and I was all on board. Like, literally, I was really expecting to like this movie. And, uh, like I say, at that pie-eating scene, I was like, oh, no, I think this is going to go badly for me now. I, I think um, uh, another, like, part of, of the movie that I, I guess, like, one of the more interesting pieces that I read about it, which isn't really about, like, whether the movie is good or not, because uh, it's also very extra-textual. But um, it, I guess it kind of shows like a lack of decorum or or, or care on David Lowry, or, yeah, on Lowry's part. But um, one person, uh, this woman who writes for uh, Pajiba, um, wrote about how she felt so off put 
um, with knowing that this was Casey Affleck um, under this sheet. Uh, so basically, if you haven't seen the movie, Casey Affleck sort of like is able to, you know, as as this apparition, able to go anywhere he wants and look at whatever he wants. It's you know like a you know Ghost of Christmas Past or whatever. But um, although I guess this is Ghost of Christmas all time. Um, uh, that didn't land. This is the ghost, um, of, pa- <laughs> ghost of the ghost of party day. But anyway, uh, but she said she felt very uncomfortable with the fact that like this is a guy um, who f- has just like feels like he has free access to all of these um, places, like the most private um, parts of of this woman's life. And there's a point where he is like touching her while she's asleep, and like just like knowing these parts of Casey Affleck's life it was hard to uh, excise that from her viewing of it as this fictional movie and which I thought was really interesting just to like think about and talk about yeah it's certainly not a reading I took away but you know right. in reading it after I'm not the I'm not really in the group that's going to probably perceive that element of it but to read about it afterwards it is like kind of a valid concern it's it's a very I mean He's this brooding apparition. He's supposed to be grief personified, but in a way, he's just kind of like a creepy, possessive boyfriend who won't leave. And that's <laughs> you know, and that's that's kind of another reading. And that's part of the reason I dislike the film is that I think that it 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 latches onto certain ideas, but it never. There's no real through line. There's no cohesive thesis that would really make you you know, to kind of tie it down. And there's snippets of ideas of like, maybe they're, they're, the relationship is pres- is presented being very positive first and they're very deeply in love. Um, and then there's flashbacks throughout, or we're not quite sure if they're flashbacks or if they're time repeating or if they're the ghost recollection. We don't know if the ghost has a recollection. His humanity certainly seems to fade throughout or, you know, his connection as time goes by. We're wondering, you know, is Kate, how much of Casey Affleck still, the character still there? What does he remember you know about anything which the film can't really conceive of but um yeah it's it's like there's flashbacks to their relationship and there's kind of cracks appear particularly as sean mentioned about this the part of this narrative within it that uh remara's character wants to move to a different house and casey affleck is attached to the house kind of sentimentally it's the to whatever the first house they bought together it's where they've lived he just loves its rustic charm and she wants to move somewhere a little bit you know bigger and nicer or whatever um, you know, so it's like this idea of the ghost clinging on to these mistakes, you know, maybe it's a regret about the relationship not going the way he wanted to. There's, you know, you could perceive it in those lines, but it, like we've hinted before, I don't really know these characters. They're not, and they're in the film, their credit is what, like a C and M or something like that. They don't even have names. Um, but there's no, there's no reason to really care about them. And I don't think the film really has a universality to elevated above that it's you know i say it's got the nietzsche textbook that kind of points you down that road and then will oldham shows up and talks about you know the the cruel grip of time that destroys everything and yet man futilely kicks against it and what's the point you know and it's it's like i want to sorry i want i'll I'll let you finish your thought jack but i want to get back to the will oldham scene because i have a thought about it but yeah continue but but i just i just feel like it has these snippets these elements but yeah it, it doesn't it doesn't transmute into something profound to me and i think it's a large part of that is because i don't think the film has a credibility established to look at that like it feels very much like an incredibly kind of like i say the the freshman 101 
just kind of talking back to me. You know, someone who really has nothing at stake in this movie. The, like, the movie to me feels like there's nothing on the line whatsoever. It feels like just the idle whitterings of kind of a bougie middle-class guy who's kind of got a film camera. And, you know, it's just, it, it just irks me. There's, there could be so much at stake in the film, and there just isn't. There's no immediacy. There's no kind of kind of what we say like um fundamental human urge even though this is supposed to be a universal tale it just uh, it just rubs me the wrong way on so many and this is part of what reminds me of richard linkladder because uh, honestly i've the exact same feeling with his films i feel like there's nothing on the line with his movies um just like i just couldn't give a shit again honestly, uh New- newton boys they could have gotten caught on, yeah, honestly, um, if we could take the people in the if we could take the people from the before sunrise trilogy and put them in Dunkirk, that actually I'd show up for. Okay, let's move on to Eric here. Yeah, I still got to I still got to screen myself, but I don't know about this endorsing all of this, uh, Jack. You know, he's spewing a lot of poison over there. <laughs> I feel like I was more positive towards the new guys at the start. I feel like I was more like, eh, it's it's got some things, but it's not good. Yeah, Whereas I can't you guys, endorse the you, way that it looks. Yes, yeah, <laughs> you, you guys just came out of it and you were like, I hate this movie. And I'm like, okay, cool. I don't get to be the complete asshole for once. Eric, tell me why this Will Oldham scene is not a blight on humanity. <laughs> <laughs> um, well... I get, like I guess I, what, what's sort of being complained about, at least from Jack, is that like it, it's sort of a moment that spells out the whole thesis of the film. Like it just gives you the film on a silver platter, basically. But you know, in that whole scene, he's I guess there's there's a little bit of undercutting. I think just ba- baked into the conceit of the film, which is like you know Will Oldham's you know going on this diatribe about how you know. We dead and we're we die and we're and then we're dead and then we're gone and then the universe goes on and blah blah blah. But like you know, a ghost is watching him say that. It's it's sort of like one of those things where it's like it's sort of like undercutting him a little bit, where it's like this guy's actually not right because like there's the whole movie is literally about a ghost. So clearly, at least within the universe of this film, it you know. There is no there there is some sort of there is something of you that, that isn't the ghost like morning. Yeah, but what well, well, he may or may not be. No, I agree with that because I think that there is a twist in the tale in terms of Will Oldham's de- delivery is not the the full thesis. It's just a very it's it's a very obviously inserted commentary within a film that otherwise seems to be evading commenting on itself aside from other things like that Nietzsche text and so on. Right. But the my issue with it is is that it doesn't credibly announce any other point of departure for the film it doesn't really tell us like there's the what's the counterpoint to what he's saying what what does it really build onto i mean is this a meditation on time but is what what, what do we learn from the ghost and his his fruitless struggle yeah to try it seems and- like he's mourning exactly what he's saying like it, it it feels like he's he's sad about exactly what will Olam's saying so so at the mm. same time that there's a ghost there which i think is a really smart observation i i feel like he's sort of doubling down on what he's saying See what I got is I is I will agree with this word undercutting, but for me it almost undercut the entire resonance of the film because I'm I'm meant to care about this small story, this this story that should feel universal and should feel achingly sad in the hands of Terrence Malick, uh, but 
A, I, I have no reason to ever be invested in, in this relationship and in this man and his death and his afterlife. And even at the point where I'm starting to, to feel something, I'm, I'm going, okay, I see where this is going. It is, it is going to be, as, as Sean anticipated, uh, kind of the story of this place, this place's past, its present, its future. And that, that could be very interesting. And then Will Oldham comes in and he says directly to me, None of this fucking matters. And I said, you know, you're on to something. <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, for me, I had problems with it from the word go because I thought the, the music was incredibly overwrought in the open. Me too. And, me too. Yeah, I, I just felt the whole time it was it, – it didn't establish a mood. It didn't establish any sort of investment from me. It was It was telling me – or it was telling me what to feel. You know, it was the pie eating is like just a various or, or a very obvious signifier of like symptoms of grief. Like she's going to binge this pie. Yeah. OK. It was just everything was just so basic a signpost for me. It was like you're supposed to be this is what this represents. This is what that represents. Feel this now. Experience this now. And for me, it was it was incredibly off putting and it 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 just really struggled to be a consistently engaging film for me because when it would start to to wrap me in, it would you know cut away to uh, the ghost having a chat with the neighbor ghost and uh, subtitled in cutesy bullshit. And uh, that was the one laugh in the the showing that that I attended. That was like the one break where people laughed, and it was like. You know, and it's it's kind of a cute, funny little thing, but I, yeah, I don't feel that it particularly belongs in the movie. Right, um, it doesn't fit. Yeah, Nor it does, does it, all the like. He also plays with horror conventions quite a bit in the film, which also has no place in this narrative. Yeah, and it's well, I suppose it's kind of like horror is always there. To me, the film, what it is, is it's a massive potentiality in the early. That's why I was engaged in the early parts because it was so it's so sparsely populated with details in the earlier parts that I felt like it could really go anywhere and it's just, and it's maybe it will go somewhere good. Maybe there's a reason for all this, but it just, it transpires. It moves along that. No, there's, there's really no credible reason for this. And now I'm just trapped in well, this boring dudes walk through. Maybe we'll have to wait. Maybe we'll have, we'll have to wait for the sequel to find out. Well, if, two ghosts, if, two story. <laughs> if I could just jump in real quick, I want to go back to something that you said, Sean, about when Will Oldham's giving his speech and, uh, you said the ghost had a very mournful expression on his face. Oh, I mean, just like, but um, <laughs> I mean, no, no, I'll, just I'll, to clarify. On. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, it's okay because it. This is. It reminds me of this thing, the of the Kuleshov effect, where the ghost is. First of all, the ghost is in like a Charlie Brown ghost costume, um, mm-hmm. which is matched with this indie film atmospheric aesthetic, but. Um, uh, but I think anything that you take out of the film is really sort of what you're putting into the film. And so however you you can, it's, it's the ghost is literally a blank slate with the same expression. It's just two eye holes, the whole mm-hmm. film. But however, however that makes you feel staring at it, that's ultimately your reaction to the film. So obviously it's not, so I, when, I'm, I'm, when not, I'm bored. <laughs> yeah. So if, no, yeah, no, I think that's fine, a symptom. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Uh, I think that's a symptom of like me trying to to ascribe something 
onto this where I didn't find anything, I guess. Yeah, one of the things I said to Sean right when we walked out of the theater was, uh, maybe this would have been better if it didn't have that fucking ghost standing around the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and that, that's I think that's there's actually a fair point to be derived from that. Like, I think this is a, this could be just an interesting a text if you just removed certain points it was like it's it's weirdly minimalist and yet somehow too on the nose on certain well, points it's like you can roll it back the the real thing that we should be talking about is what was on that piece of paper was it binary code <laughs> yeah <laughs> to the nearest space station whatever Anne Hathaway jotted down whatever you know like a not yeah. since lost in translation as a mystery held me so wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> and does he escape the eternal recurrence when he gets it? We'll never, we'll never know. And I honestly don't really ever care to find out. Yeah. All right, let's. I will. I will say. I will take ten, ten more of ghost stories before I see another Dunkirk. Same. Uh, have, well, do with that with which you will. I'll stay at home. I'd, I'd watch. I'd watch Dunkirk again, honestly. Even if it's twenty minutes longer than this movie, I'd at least Dunkirk is like. At least I can actively look at Dunkirk and go, I don't like so why short. he's doing this here. Whereas, yeah, yeah. Ghost Story, I'm just like, I guess Dunkirk was never going to be really good, probably. Whereas a Ghost Story, I feel like if someone had a little bit of, you know, oomph, they could have made something useful out of it. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say, having not seen Dunkirk, but I'm still going to go with the ghost story because, uh, you know, it won't interrupt my nap at the very least. But, <laughs> <wow>. So I, <laughs> I'm going to, we're going to move on, guys. We've been at this ghost story for an awful long time. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to throw to Jake first. What we're doing here is we're replacing our putover segment this episode with. A different sort of put over. We're kind of just past the midway point of the year, uh, and we want to highlight our some of our favorite films of this year thus far. Uh, and I'm going to start with Jake because I think yeah. it's kind of an interesting segue from a ghost story to a, sure. a film that had some definite similarities and uh, really had no business working at all, but totally no did. Spoilers. No spoilers. Yeah. Uh, no spoilers. We're not. I, I won't spoil it. No, of course, I would never spoil it if you've never it's seen not, this movie. It's not really much of a. It's not like we're talking about Lost here. I, I don't think there's a great deal of. It's not a plot heavy film. So. Yeah, this is uh, Orange County Choppers or something. What is this? Personal yeah. Shopper. Um, yeah, so Personal Shopper is the latest film by uh, uh, Olivier Alsayas, who's one of my favorite filmmakers. Did we just lose Jack? I'm sorry I think to interrupt. We lost Eric. No, no, I'm here. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Eric. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Anyways, um, so yeah, a French filmmaker, Olivier Assayas, who I think is one of the best filmmakers working today. Um, he always has very compelling images, and really any genre of film seems to be, be very malleable in his hands, whether it's a uh, a, a biopic about a, a famous Spanish revolutionary or a familial drama about art and He death. did Frida? Uh, yes, he did Frida um, and Carlos. But uh, so Personal Shopper is the latest film starring Kristen Stewart. And this is kind of a spinoff of her character from uh, Clouds of Sils Maria. It's not the same person, but you can really see sort of similarities. And she uh, – hey, Eric. And she um, – so she's a personal shopper for this famous celebrity. Um, not really made clear whether she's a model or an actress. And she buys all of her clothes for her. And she's recently lost her twin brother – to a congenital heart disease that she also has and she's 
kind of trying to find any sign of his that his passing uh, went well and that he's in a better place, so to speak. And what Adam said is correct. It's a film that really should not work, but I think it works beautifully. And we're really just following this character as as she's sort of finding, trying to just get through her her life and her fascination with art and her existence and just and the. The middle segment of this film is literally about 40 minutes or so of Kristen Stewart just receiving text messages from an anonymous source. and But it's riveting just to watch her chat with this unknown caller. And, yeah, so. yeah, and uh, and I, I, I just find it's just such a fascinating, unusual, and yet wholly engrossing piece. And and that's why it's it's stayed with me several months after I watched it. I think it's one of the very best films of the year. So... Uh, personal shopper uh, gets a high recommend from me. Yeah, I got some heavy like cachet vibes from that whole segment, I, I, which is a very strong compliment from me because I love yeah. me some cachet. Cachet is great too. Not necessarily, yeah, not necessarily all questions are answered either. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, personal shopper, go see it. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and do uh, Jackie's the next. Okay, so um. I, as always, I'm way behind on movies, but definitely I think this is going to be one of my favorites for the whole year. Um, technically 2016 release, but honestly, I don't. Well, there was no chance to see it in the cinemas until 2017. Um, but the movie I'm going to put over is Bill Morrison's latest film, which is Dawson City Frozen Time, which is Bill Maher. Yes, yes, that's Bill Maher. Yeah, he's, he's it's basically just a bunch of racism dressed up as jokes. Um, no, Bill Morrison, who's a fantastic uh, experimental filmmaker. Um, probably his best-known work previous prior to this is probably Decasia, which is a film about rotted film. It's basically decayed old film set to music. Um, this is follows in a similar vein. It's Normally, it's a documentary about a frontier town in, Cal- in Canada during the gold rush. Um, it's basically the storyline behind it. It's kind of got a multiple strands to it, but the storyline essentially is that films circulated, old silent films were, were distributed all around the United States and they'd go along a certain route and eventually they'd end up in this frontier town in Canada as the furthest point from kind of civilization. And that was the end of the line for, for those films. And it was more expensive to send them back than to, you, you know, normally you would return prints to the, to the distributor for them to destroy or preserve or whatever. It was too expensive to send them back so they just held on to them and they ended up burying them under what became an ice rink and so on and the cold extreme cold weather preserved them and then in the 1970s they they kind of dug up they found this incredible cachet of of uh of old silent films some of them were lost some of them were you know they found footage of the the white Sox world series game the early 1900s which apparently was marred by match fixing you know but they didn't have footage of that anywhere else they, they found this among, amid the newsreels and stuff so it's just, it's it basically takes it to start this incredible find of silent cinema and then it builds a tale on top of that of the burgeoning economy of that frontier town through and basically the whole film is basically clips of these silent films kind of edited together, just scenes of these films edited together, and then photos, period photos of the frontier time, town with text, in the kind of text overlaid giving you, kind of giving you details about it. But what, what the film basically is, it's, it's difficult to kind of describe fully the, it, its narrative, but it's basically kind of an ode to the physical celluloid itself, a film not as a work of art, 
but as a physical memento, as a kind of a captured, crystallized memory uh, kind of endeavor of, of man. So it's, it gives this really interesting idea of the birth of this town and the history as people pass through it. And there's some really fascinating elements uncovered from from this town. I mean, for example, Donald Trump's really grandfather got his start. He, he was one of his he, he got his start up there economically. That's where he made his original money to lead on, which now has become fairly you know prescient as Donald Trump is now very, very, very high profile internationally. And that's really worrying. But anyhow, um so it's kind of a film that marries this with the, the historicity of, of, of film itself. And that's what really draws me to it, is that it's not just film evaluating film as art. Film becomes often disposable to us in art. It either works or it doesn't work. We forget about it's, that it's also a source of memory. It's also a source of record, of archiving things. So the, the film draws a very, I think, interesting text out of that. Um which is really what what draws me to it. So I, I just think it's, it's certainly it's one you've got to go into with kind of an open mind. It's not like a ha, you know fast paced exciting movie. It's got a lot of you know you, you really have to be on board with it. But for me, I was actually enraptured with it. I loved it. It was uh, you know just sitting in a theater. These old films, these these kind of glimpses of different points in history. Uh, how it ties into the modern day. Just, uh, I just, it's, it is a film lover's film. It's, it's a film that's kind of imbued with the love of film itself as a craft, as a something to be pursued, and that to me is really interesting. And that's kind of where Bill Morrison's predicating himself as a, as so, a film artist. So, is this sort of like, a, does this pick up where re- religious uh, left off? God. <laughs> So we're, we're we're keeping with the Bill Maher thing, yes, yes, it does. <laughs> very very similar to religious. It's mostly it's mostly just like an old Nickelodeon. I'm interviewing a bunch of truckers. <laughs> I wonder if uh, Ben Stein will release a heated response film. <laughs> just to All just right. to jump in real quick, I've also seen uh, Dawson City Frozen Time, and it is exceptional work. So yeah, and it doesn't, and it is not in any way uh, related to Bill Maher. So do not <laughs> let that in any way put you off. Well, now I feel, I feel as if I've seen it already. Uh, I'm gonna <laughs> throw over to Eric Bailey before he he like disappears again. Uh, Eric, are you you have a steady connection? You're going to give us your recommendation? I think so. I think I'm all set. Um, yeah, my I definitely my favorite film of the year so far that I've seen is. Um, Terrence Davies, A Quiet Passion. Um, it is, it's a biopic about um, Emily Dickinson, but um, it is most definitely not your traditional biopic movie, even though it definitely fits within that genre and that mode. It, I mean, it, 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 this isn't like your typical kind of Oscar bait, like great person film. Um, it's, it's very slow and meditative like you know if anybody's ever seen a terrence davies movie like you know distant voices still lives or the long day closes or you know the deep blue sea or sunset song from last year which was also one of my favorites from last year um you kind of know what to expect with him you're you know the gorgeous cinematography very like um very fluid but slow tracking shots as he kind of just like pans across an environment or follows a character um just going going about these these moments of like great melancholy and trauma and what have you and um i'm making it sound like kind of a downer movie and i would say that it ends on kind of a downer note but for the first half of it at least it's it's 
also really funny. Like it's it's one of the funniest films I've seen all year. It's it's kind of got a, a comedy of manners type thing, and and the language can be a little tricky to get into. That's one thing I'd warn people about. Is you know he. You know, he writes period dialogue very well, Terrence Davies, and he, um, it's definitely got that 1800s America kind of feel to it, um, the dialogue, but yeah, I, I, I would recommend it. It's got one of the, probably the best sequences I've seen in a film in years that just maybe, I've seen it twice in theaters and both times, this one sequence in the middle of the film, like, um, just made me want to just jump out of my seat and just run around the theater like just screaming like this is why I go to the movies. So, um yeah, it, it's 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 a it's an exquisite film. It, I I I'm not doing it justice at all because it's one of those films that it really kind of needs to be seen in words words whatever I can whatever I can say about it will pale in comparison to what the film actually is. So, yeah, Terrence Davies' A Quiet Passion. That's definitely that's definitely on my list of the best films of the year so far. And it stars uh, that person from Sex and the City. Yes, so Cynthia Nixon, a, yes. So that's Cynthia. definitely a tie-in. Yes. <laughs> hmm. she, uh, she and her sister often t- sit at just – there's many scenes of the two of them just sitting at the table talking about their sex lives. So. Yeah, Emily Dickinson <laughs> trying, to, trying to make it in New York writing her column. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're, we're getting there. Let's go to Sean. Uh, what did you enjoy in 2017? Yeah, um, speaking of uh, some women sitting around talking about their sex lives, um, there's plenty of that in John Wick 2. No, um, in uh, <laughs> Girls Trip, which is uh, definitely one of um, <clears throat> the most pleasurable uh, times I've had at the cinema this year. Um I'm sure, like most people, will, will know what it is. It's about these these four women who meet up after, um, like, not, sort of falling out uh, of touch with each other, and and they're they're all like you know late 30s, early 40s, and um, it's Regina Hall, Tiffany Haddish, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Queen Latifah, um, and they they're going to New Orleans uh, for Essence Fest, and um, it's a uh, it's a movie that. Um, it goes to places comedically that uh, I like. This is a formula that it's that it's using that's very like well worn and, and and overwrought, but um, it kind of surprises you. It's able to 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 surprise you comedically in the ways that um, it is not afraid to go anywhere. It's extremely blue. Um, there is like some kid I, that we sat next to uh, this father with like two little girls. And I remember looking, I remember looking like just like sort of stealing gazes at him during some moments of the movie. Uh, especially like Tiffany Haddish um, is just like outlandish. And, and he just like the guy had the straightest face you could possibly imagine with his little tiny girl. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's just some, um, Tiffany Haddish, uh, yeah, she plays sort of the wild card, and, and it kind of almost feels like Regina Hall, who's uh, Regina, it, it feels like Regina Hall is sort of like passing the torch um, uh, from. I mean, this isn't like her first serious role. I mean, it's not a, it's not a serious movie, but she plays the straight uh, person, and um, she was also the straight person in When the Bow Breaks last year, which is absolutely terrible. But um, in this. Uh, 
Tiffany Haddish is not only just like outlandish and funny, but she's given real weight and, and her lines are like really like smart. And um, that sort of speaks to what this movie does overall, which is, like I said, it takes this formula, but it, it's able to put um, like meaningful relationships pitted against each other and, and is able to pull out drama in a way that that's interesting. And um, specifically Regina Hall's character, uh, she plays like sort of the main she she plays the person with the most at stake, I guess, or the most central um, conflict, and um, it's basically about like her relationship with with her husband, and it's um, sort of like subtly. Um, it, it, she, she's not in a good relationship with with her partner, and uh, the way that it, it's able to use that is was really interesting. Um, like it could have just been like a lifetime movie where it's like, this is a bad relationship. She needs to get out, but it's able to really like articulate some of the difficulties that women have getting out of these, uh, bad relationships, um, and how, uh, the friends are, the friends around that relationship, um, struggle and are frustrated with that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's beyond that. It's absolutely hysterical. Um, so I recommend it to anybody who, I used to laugh. Have a good time. Uh, no, that's not for me. So <laughs> this is this has been the most verbose putover segment of all time. So I'm going to try to keep it brief. Here in here in Mid Michigan, we may not have received um, many of the releases that the likes of Jake and Jack have. But uh, so I, I'm going to actually go with a film that it wasn't perfect and it would probably spark another uh, 45 minute debate uh, if we were to discuss it at length, but we're not. Um, I'm going with Trey Stoltz's it comes at night, which speaking of a mood piece for me was the definition of that. Weirdly, I I have a 45 minute rejection (laughs) of that movie prepared. (laughs) Uh, fortunately we are running low on time. Uh, yeah, I I just found it to be you know, a pretty basic movie, but uh, it, it it's also incredibly effective. It was it's really the only movie this year to have really kind of grabbed me by the throat, and it had it was just oozing with dread and tension, and I found it to be very effective at every turn. And I don't have much negative to say about it. I, I don't think it reinvented the wheel. It was definitely the sort of film that is functionally almost an update of Night of the Living Dead. It, it operated in a very simple sort of old school thriller horror aesthetic. But uh, I know I'm uh, not. It's not universally loved among our group. But uh, I think I, I'm, the, I'm the only one who dislikes it. I think, or somewhat, is I, I'm not crazy about it personally. Okay, that's actually yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're we're the downer patrol on this one, but yeah, <laughs> well that that's yeah. fair. I've I've been downer on many things, but I this one this one really worked for me. I thought it was it did everything it needed to and sought to, and uh, I walked out of the theater very satisfied. So uh, that was that's kind of the standout for me, uh, other than stuff we've previously discussed. But uh, until you watch Dunkirk. That that could very well be. I'm gonna pre-order my Samsung VR now. So uh, <laughs> install an IMAX screen in your living room. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of scared to throw to you guys for for Twitter feeds and what have you because you might have like 
20 paragraphs each about your Twitter address. But uh, let's let's take the gamble. Uh, Jack, Jack, where, where can the people find you online? Well, there's an interesting story about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you can find me at Real Jackies and at whatever, at Twitter. I, it's not, you know, just go there, have a look, disagree with me. Uh, I'll block you, whatever. Yeah, you, you probably have a better conversation with fake Jack Eason, but it's just one man's opinion. He's super busy. I don't know. <laughs> um, Jake, how about you? Where are they going to find you on the interwebs? Yeah, you can just find me at uh, Jake Tropila on Twitter. It's J-A-K-E-T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Hit All me up. Right. Uh, we'll be sure to do that, Jake. Uh, how sense. about you, Eric? Um, I'm at Eric Bailey on Twitter. E-R-I-C-B-A-Y-L-E-Y. Everybody always goes for the I. But Whoa. It's... <laughs> that, that Why did they do that? It's, it's a traditional spelling. Uh, yeah, so you can also read Eric's work uh, in the Lansing City Pulse or on their website. Yes. I'm sure. Uh, Sean, where are they going to find you? Um, I actually have the, the username Sean, S-H-A-W-N, on Peach. I don't even I don't even know what sort of joke that was. It's not no. a joke. That's a true story. <laughs> Your jokes are Sean, like It's literally Sean a true story. Uh, if you if you're not on Peach yet, uh, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> and I am on Twitter. Sean, your jokes at, are landing like the Challenger in '87. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> um, hole in one. Uh, okay. M R G L I N I S on Twitter. So. Okay, that that's a thing I've heard of. Peach, I I don't know if I'm meant to know what that is, but uh I do not. And I also don't use Twitter, so good luck finding me. But that that's all right. Uh you know, a couple hours a week, that's good enough for you folks. Um you can read many of our new pieces. I know we had uh Jake had recently written a piece covering more of his favorite films of the first half of this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had quite a bit of new content written on optimismvaccine.com. Uh, always be sure to check us out over there. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, even in its extreme length, um, you know, just head on over to iTunes, give us five stars, rate and review. Uh, that's always going to help us get some more eyeballs. This has been pretty fun this evening, guys, uh, but it is past my bedtime, so I'm going to throw it. To Jack for the last word, because he's had a lot to say. Yes.